Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Whether studying for her PhD at Stanford or spending all night in a Berlin techno party, Holly Herndon is obsessed with the intersection between mind and body. On releases like 2012's Movement and 2014's Chorus, she tackled her complicated relationship with the internet, the NSA, Max MSP software, and her own voice, creating a unique brand of cyberpop that is equally beautiful and frightening, academic and dance floor ready. In this talk at the 2014 Red Bull Music Academy in Tokyo, hosted by Emma Warren, Herndon discussed self-sampling, growing up in the Bible Belt, and the never-ending quest to express honest, real-time emotions through music and lyrics. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. A very big welcome, please, Holly Herndon. So we had a, a little chat yesterday out there and you said something that I thought was really interesting and I think is a really good starting point for us and that's uh, talking about being interested in the sound of now and what now really sounds like. What does now sound like? Um, I think that's something that I think a lot about um, in terms of wanting my music to sound like it's from the time that it is. So I'm not, I'm not super interested in kind of like retro fetishism or um, I don't really have a nostalgia for a, a time past. I think that that can really quickly lead into um, escapism in music and that's something that I kind of try to avoid. I think escapism has a, has a function and it can be really therapeutic and it, it, it has a role but for me personally I want music, I want my music and I would like to think that music could have a role in kind of helping direct conversations and um, helping impact the way that people are thinking about aspects outside of music, so extra musical um, ideas. So that's why it's really important to me that the stuff that I make sounds like it's today and like it's responding to today. And that's a really difficult question. What, what, is, what is now <laughs> sound like? Um, I think now sounds like, you know, always being connected to other people online. I think it sounds like... Um, I think it sounds like economic uncertainty. I think it sounds like, you know, post-WikiLeaks. You know, I think it, th those are all things that kind of influence the way that, that today sounds. See, on a, on a kind of slightly different way, uh, like where I come from in London, people, and this is, sounds like it's not connected, but it is. Um, people think that the sky sounds like a certain type of bird, but actually there's these parakeets that have, come, you know, been in London for the last 20 years. And so actually London sounds like parakeet sound now, certainly the kind of outer edges of London. That's what it really sounds like mm -hmm. now. If you think about the actual sounds which really do sound like now, what are they? are they? Are they key taps? Are they the kind of sounds, the kind of signature sounds of your Skype turning on or messages coming through? What are the actual sounds of now? I think, I think that's part of it. I also think it's just like um, every sound smashed together and juxtaposed immediately. So like really fast cuts and splices of one world right next to the other world. So like multiple, br uh, multiple browser windows open having like... Uh, political speech in one and having, you know, like pop music in another and having music from like 500 years ago in another. Like everything's just kind of like jammed together and 
and almost put at like an equal playing field because it is all jammed together on the, on the same devices. So I think that's what today sounds like. I think Tokyo, Tokyo sounds insane. Like I've been walking around and there's these, um, there's those vans that are advertising the, um, the general, the, like the clubs where you go and drink champagne with guys with crazy haircuts. And so they're like playing this hyper pop music. And yeah, so the sound of Tokyo is really crazy. But um, I've been working on a project uh, for uh, EV sounds, so electric vehicle motor sounds, because so electric cars don't have the same kind of in natural engine sound that you know non-electric cars have. So a lot of car companies have been um, putting recordings of you know actual like physical mechanical sounds in their cars because you have to tell people that you're, you know, there's been a huge problem with like um, people with, who are visually impaired or, you know, older people not, not hearing cars. Or perhaps people who are just on their phones. Or people that are on their phones, which is me often. Um, yeah, so they, they're trying to figure out a way to let pedestrians know that cars are coming. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of like sound design companies are basically coming up with like spaceship sounds. Because I guess that's what it's what, like. So your car, when you're driving to the shops, is supposed to sound like a spacecraft. Well, that, that's kind of what the idea has been. That was like the grand idea. Um, but I think that that's like a really boring solution to what could be, you know, basically any kind of sound. So I was working with this company called Simcon. And we presented at the uh, Frankfurt Motor Show last year, which was a really unusual venue for me to be in, <laughs> to be showing stuff. Um, and so basically we came up with some different options for what an electric car could sound like and when you turn your wheel how that could, how you could play your car and how your car could kind of be an instrument in that way so one of the uh, ideas that we came up with was to have like a microphone system that would um, pull in the sound of the, the city wherever you were and then it could um, process that and then that could be part of it so that it wouldn't just be like a one fit kind of solution for every city but so I think kind of like urban sound and, and uh, um, uh, urban sound planning and things like that are really, really interesting. So if you were in charge of the way that electric cars sound when they're driving down the street, they would sound differently in the city than they would in the countryside. Yes. <laughs> in short, I, yes. <laughs> I much prefer the sound of you being in charge than someone who wants to make cars sound like spacecraft. I mean, what is, <laughs> surely there's no sound in space anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> So this idea of wanting to sound like now and bringing in the sound of now into the work you make, how does that actually manifest itself in the, in the sounds, in the music you make? Um, well, I guess production technique is, is one way. Like, um, So my partner, who I collaborate with a lot, uh, Matthew Dryhurst, he built a system um, for a performance that he did at the South Bank Center last year um, called Dispatch. And it's software that um, essentially you can um, kind of like record your browsing activity or whatever you're doing on your computer and um, kind of sample yourself and smash those samples together into what he calls net concrete. Which I think it's a really nice, clever little term. Um, but uh, yeah, so so this kind of, this topic of surveillance, which is uh, which is the term that is self surveillance, is kind of a big topic in the Bay. I'm from the Bay Area, so it's like tech center. I, a digital mystic. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I spend my time between San Francisco and Silicon Valley, so it's like a, it's a very weird. Um, for those of you who haven't been there, it's a very weird part of the world. Um, so that that's kind of like a hot topic. Can you just break that down? What does that mean? Um, so self-surveillance, so that could be anything from like... Sue meaning under. 
What, what is it? What's, oh, what what's the etymology? Mean? I don't know. I would have to Wikipedia that. <laughs> um, so surveillance being looking out and surveillance maybe looking in or something? Yeah, that would, that would is make that, sense. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, yeah, yeah. self yeah. Um, so it's like some people use it for like weight loss to like, I don't know, like survey what they're eating or like how, how many um, steps they're taking or things like that. But it can be like applied to like pretty much every aspect of your life. So that that's kind of what we were doing with his patch. And so I was just kind of like recording everything that I was like self-surveilling myself of everything that I was experiencing online and then using that like huge amount of recordings to kind of like smash together and create this uh, net concrete aesthetic. So it that's how it kind of like filters into songwriting. Can I just ask you to break down what you're talking about when you say net concrete? What does that mean? Um, so you guys know what music concrete is. Well, I guess maybe there's people here or maybe people watching who don't. So uh, okay. I guess it's useful just to give a kind of like a basic kind of... Um, Primer on music of, yeah, concrete. Like, okay, you, I wasn't prepared well, for this, but I will come up with something. I don't, mean, uh, I don't mean necessarily anything in depth, but I guess what you're talking about is music which refers back to a kind of a, a beginning of avant-garde music. Right, well, well music concrete is basically sampling. Um, so Pierre Schaefer was one of the early uh, pioneers of music concrete, and he, uh, one, his kind of philosophy was really wanting to separate um, separate sounds from their sources. So he didn't. He he thought that like a really kind of like elevated version of 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 listening would be if you could like hear a train sample but not think about a train. So it was like trying to like get to that point. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's actually good to um, to make those connections. But that was kind of you know, when, when was that? Like, I guess in the twenties. Uh, okay, good, because I was going to be way off We're there. We're missing a, a tiny little bit of expertise here, but uh, um, yes. roughly. <laughs> so it's kind of hearkening back to that, but we call it net concrete because it's it's all on the internet. Okay. Was that good? Yep, that's that's, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Um, okay, so this net concrete for you is about creating, I guess, a kind of a sound bank of stuff which you've sampled. Mm-hmm from within your life and your digital life. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about, you've talked about a patch that you use, but what about the induction mics that you use mm-hmm. in order to capture these sounds? Um, so the induction mic thing's uh, slightly different. It's more about kind of uh, giving my physical laptop a voice mm-hmm. and playing it as an instrument. So that's something that I've thought a lot about um, in the last several years, especially when I was at Mills. I was thinking about um, making laptop performance embodied and like a, a real kind of like physical in 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 the present kind of uh, experience, that's that's one of the criticisms that you know maybe not in this room everybody kind of like knows that laptop music like accepts laptop music like totally normal. But for a lot of people, it's really still very abnormal, which is kind of mind blowing. But um, so a lot of people, I, I, I heard a lot of arguments of like, but you can't see like the physical gesture. You don't know if you're checking your email. You know all those kind of arguments that um, I don't really think hold up but in in an attempt to kind of address some of those um some of those biases i came up with a system where i use induction mics which are essentially they they pick up electrical signal so people who build uh hardware often use them to um to debug because you can like hear like you know like (laughs) kind of sounds like um so anyways that's what my laptop sounds like and it in the upper left hand corner is where most of the um Hard drive activity is happening, so it's the loud, the like, 
push is the loudest there and it kind of tapers off. So it's like a really nice amplitude envelope that you can kind of play almost like a theremin. And so I can take that signal and I can like smooth it out and make it really beautiful, make it sound like a violin, or I can map it to an instrument and kind of, you know, I mean, you can do, you can do anything with it. So, yeah. So you use that in your, I've seen you using that in live performance, mm -hmm. but you're using that also for kind of the work that you're making before you're performing it live. In the studio, I actually don't use it that much, to be 100% honest. It's more of a, for me, that's more of kind of a performance thing. Um, in the studio, I use my regular microphone probably the most, and I'll usually, like, set up some sort of a process or a system and then just kind of, like, play around with that until I get something. I mean, it's like what everyone does until something kind of clicks and then... So you're talking about your laptop sounding a certain way, that there being a lot of sound activity in one corner and that you can build this sound from it. But what else does your laptop sound like when you're, you know, when you think about how it sounds, what does it sound like to you? What else is going on in and around there? Um, it sounds like really intimate Skype conversations. It sounds like me checking other people out and spying on people. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, basically like daily life. It's like this integrated part of our kind of, you know, day-to-day -day activity. So, um, yeah, that's one reason why I think it's really funny that people say that that laptops are so disembodied because I'm like, actually, it's so, you know, it's so connected to me. It, un unlike a violin, it like hears me ch talk to my mom, you know what I mean? And it like mediates that conversation. Um, so I've, I just think it's, I think it's a hyper personal um, instrument. And so I think I, I try to pull that out in certain ways. It's, yeah, it's still a challenge. So it, it really is. I mean, I've, I've heard this phrase used... Uh, maybe about you or maybe you saying it, but the idea of your laptop as a kind of bionic extension of yourself. Mm -hmm. So it, you really see it in that way as a, a kind of bionic thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when people talk about technology, like, you know, human versus machine and like whether like your tool is actually an extension of yourself and things like that. I, I do think it is an extension of ourselves. I think that our I think that our digital this is going to sound really cheesy. I think that our digital avatars <laughs> are also extensions of ourselves. <laughs> but I stand by that statement. Um, yeah. So let's see. What do we want to say about that? Okay. Well, one thing that I think's really kind of interesting and problematic about that. It, so I've been talking to this German philosopher named um, I hope I don't butcher his name Hannes uh, Grassinger. And he has this idea of bits and atoms when comparing them. And I think that's a really nice analog. So like your digital self and your physical self. And he talks a lot about kind of like your human rights. You, you, have, um, you have ownership of, of yourself and you have rights of your physical body, but you don't necessarily have rights for your digital body, especially with, you know, like Facebook and all of these like pretty evil companies that we've all like totally jumped into trying to pull out of. Um, so trying to think about those as kind of equals bits and atoms and how we can um, fight, for, fight for rights for our digital selves as well. So there's like a whole movement um, called the Indie Web that's um, mostly based in the States and the UK, but it's kind of a global movement of people trying to um, build tools that where pe you know, so that people have alternatives to things like Facebook. and In a way, kind of uh, sort of moving back towards the pre-corporate era of the web. Yeah. I mean, not replicating, obviously, because you can't, but yeah. finding, creating spaces in the internet that, that are 
decorporatized. Totally. And also kind of like a return back to almost like blogging style where you self-host everything and you own all of your stuff and you're just linking back to yourself instead of just like giving all of these companies all of your data and then they own it and then, you know, you don't have it anymore. They're hosting it. So, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really interesting kind of analog and it definitely ties into what I'm doing. So you mentioned a minute ago that something about Mills... You did some work there in an academic way. Can you just explain kind of what that is? So Mills College is a very unique snow, very unique snowflake. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, it, yeah, I don't know any other place on earth that's like it. It's um, it's a university in Northern California, and it has a long tradition of experimental electronic music. Um, so it's everybody's been there from like um, Morton Subotnick, John Cage. Uh, Paulina Livieros it has like this huge lineage of amazing composers and um, and dancers as well. Yeah, so I was living in Berlin at the time, and I was having a really difficult time. I don't, I don't know if I want to say teaching myself, but like getting kind of the skills that I wanted to get. And I was having a really hard time like penetrating um, in, uh, institutions in Germany. I think. You know, I speak German, but there was still kind of a, a language barrier, and there's it, sometimes it's just more difficult. I think Berlin, Germany as a whole, also their kind of academic institutions are slightly more conservative and old school. So I was having a really hard time just kind of like getting access to information, getting access to skills, and things like that. So I made the decision to move back to the states and go to Northern California, which was kind of terrifying because I was really happy in Berlin and like. I don't know if you guys have spent any time there, but, you know, my, my whole life was there. I was there for five years, and it was like, okay, I'm just going to, like, rip up everything and go to this, like, weird hippie school in Northern California. <laughs> and But it was, a, it was a really good decision because, um, I mean, Northern California has had a dramatic impact on the way that I make music. I wasn't, I wasn't making computer music before I went there. Um, and also the, the kind of uh, nurturing environment that Mills, that Mills creates was a really good way for me to learn how to how to use those those tools without it being kind of intimidating. It's also has a really strange kind of gender dynamic because it's an all female school, and then the graduate program is mixed. So and it's mostly male, um, the electronic music program. So it's like you've got it's just like this really weird dynamic in like the lunchroom when you've got all of these like young women and you've got like five young men walking across the cafeteria and all eyes are like. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, but yeah, it was it was just a really good environment to learn about um, to learn about Max and learn about you know recording techniques and all kinds of things like that. Uh, Maggie Payne is one of the professors there, and she's a has a huge wealth of knowledge when it comes to recording, and she has a really nice way of um, communicating information without being too didactic. Um, and I also got to work with uh, John Bischoff, who's like a, a computer music pioneer. He um, he has a project called The Hub. And it's the first network computer band. And so they were like, they were using Kim 2s at the time, which is like a really early computer. It's like basically like a, a um, calculator. <laughs> it's like one step up from a calculator. Um, and they were uh, networked together and, um, and they, they still play. They travel around and so they, um, they network over the internet and, um, and kind of jam and stuff like that. But uh, looking at his work and seeing him perform was kind of the first time. It was like this aha moment where it was like, oh, a laptop can be a really serious instrument. Like it, it, it can also be a concert instrument. It's, you know, because I, I had never kind of 
encountered that before or experienced that before. And to see him performing in these beautiful concert halls on the laptop and seeing everyone take it so seriously, it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Not that you have to have that validation, but it was just really nice to see that as an option. Um, and then Fred Frith is also there. And he has a um, he has an improvisation. Um, it's it's like a it's a area of study. So there's electronic music, and then there's improvisation. So there's improv kids everywhere, and they're improvising all over the place, which is like super scary for me because I'm not the kind of person who's like, let's go jam, you know. So, so it like made me have to kind of you know have to just like play on the spot. And so I was in their ensemble for uh, for a term and. Um, yeah, I was improvising on the laptop, which isn't something that I want to do or pursue, but it was it was it was really important in like getting me kind of out of my shell and learning it as an instrument in a way. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking quite a lot about the music. Can we hear something? Maybe it might be interesting to play something that you made around that time. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah. Um bum too. Anyway, Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Um, I thought actually, well, it occurred to me while we were listening to that, that you're using your voice here. And actually this connects back in time to the way you started in music as a child in choirs in East Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Um, You had a pretty solid schooling in using your voice back then, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I grew up, um, I grew up in a very religious part of the United States. It's called the Bible Belt. And my parents are very religious, and we went to church all the time. And part of that meant, like, you know, making music in the church. So I took guitar lessons in the church. I um, I sang in the church choir, the adult choir, and the youth choir. Um, but I also took, um, you know, piano lessons as a child. And then um, I was also, I was really into choir. I did uh, all-state choir, which is like this pretty dorky, um, competitive choral thing where you go and you like sight read. And if your sight reading's really good, then you can join the choir in like <laughs> another city and play with an orchestra or something. So I was, uh, really into that kind of stuff. What kind of things would you sing with them? Oh God, I have no idea what the repertoire was. It was like, it was a mix of like, um, mostly classical, but they would also throw in like, um, some gospel sometimes, but do you, wait, do you, which choir? Yeah, this Cause I was in lots of different choirs. <laughs> In church, it was like, some of it was like ah, contemporary Christian choral writing, which isn't like contemporary Christian rock, but it's like, it's still like extremely emotional. Like, <laughs> so yeah. So you're not talking hymns. You're not talking kind of no, like also high hymns. church choral hymns. Also high church choral hymns. It was a hodgepodge. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wondered as well, because, you know, Um, if there's a connection between the kind of area of music you're interested in, this kind of uh, essentially avant-garde music, if you, if we can call it that, Uh, sorry. And, um, and having a kind of schooling in choirs, because if you take someone like Brian Eno, he talks a lot about the fact that he started out in choirs and in fact still has a choir. Do you think there's anything that you got from that experience that shows up in the way you make music now? Um, I do. I mean, just also like my love of vocal writing and my, um, I feel really comfortable writing for the voice. I feel comfortable writing for other vocalists. Whereas when I write for, um, instruments, sometimes I'm a little bit shaky because I don't, you know, like I wrote for a brass ensemble last year and it was like, when you write for the trombone, you have to think about like, um, they, there are four different positions. And so like, if, if you write a note that goes from position one to position four, that's like really hard for the player. They have to like 
like physically. It's so anytime you write for an instrument, you have to kind of like study the instrument and learn like what's physically possible. But for the voice, I just feel so comfortable writing for the voice. So that's, that's also, you know, one of the reasons. Um, um, and also while I was at Mills, I joined the early vocal music ensemble. So we were singing, you know, music from like the 1500s, modal music. And um, a lot of that music has a lot of aesthetic similarities to minimalism. Um, and so I think, I think there's definitely like an aesthetic kind of bridge between those two. Any particular favorites from that canon? Um, I don't know. We sang a lot of bird and yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have like a, a huge wealth of knowledge of the, of all of the repertoire, but, um, I like listening to it. I really like the, the talus, the talus piece. If you guys know the, um, 40 part motet, it's actually one of the, um, one of the early spatialized pieces. It was written for a, you know, back in the day when like a, a very rich patron would... Um, well, Kings, Talis wrote a lot for Kings, didn't he? Yeah, I think this was not, this was for like, just like a kind of like rich guy. <laughs> and he had this specific building that he was, that he wanted the piece written for. And so it was, um, the choir stood in a U around the audience and he plays with that in the writing. So it's, kind of, you know, it's, he plays with the spatialized... Um, yeah, and in the polyphony. So it's that that one's a really beautiful piece if you So a three D sound system from five hundred years ago. Exactly. <laughs> um if we're kind of moving from you, you know, in choirs when you were a kid to you when you moved to Berlin, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the kind of heavy, hardcore, informal education you had in the nightclubs of Berlin. What did you learn from that? Um yeah, I didn't go to conservatory before I went to Mills. And so a lot of people that are kind of on the path that I'm on right now or the people that I study with right now are from that background. But I didn't do that. I was more interested when I was younger in visual arts and things like that. So when I moved to Berlin, I was basically a club kid for a couple of years. I don't think I saw daylight. <laughs> I worked in clubs and like I went to everything. And that was that was like a really important thing for me also coming from East Tennessee to be like, like, I didn't speak English for a couple years. All of my friends were German, and everything that I did was in German. And I really needed to, like, shed my past self to, to become my present self. <laughs> no, but I really needed to kind of, like, let go of that to, to be able to embrace it again. Now I really enjoy going home, but I had to kind of, like, completely reject it uh, to be able to move forward. So I just spent a ton of time. It was more kind of on the consumption end. I was like, just like going, I was dancing. I was going to clubs and dancing all the time. So where would you go and who were you listening to? Um, well at the time it was kind of like minimal was King in Berlin at the time. So, um, this was when, uh, 2003 to 2008. And so this was at the beginning of that period. And then I kind of like burned out and then decided to do other stuff in Berlin, but that was at the beginning. So, yeah, I just remember, like, really, really long sessions with, like, you know, Richie Houghton and uh, Villa Lobos. They would, like, play for, like, 12 hours or something. Um, there was a – it's hard to remember all of the clubs because they were often, like, pop-ups that aren't around anymore. But um, I remember one party was called Beat Street, and that was just, like, people would play for hours and, like, you know, like, the walls were, like, dripping with sweat and, you know, so that – yeah, that was fun. <laughs> um, and then, and then I started kind of getting more involved in the um, in the noise scene. I started getting really interested in experimental music. There's a 
the Udika, which is the art university there, has a program where you can take like workshops with like master classes. And so they invited a woman named Lauren Newton who does vocal improvisation. And so I took her master class and that was like, I mean, she's insane. She like doesn't prepare anything. I mean, she's always preparing because she's always practicing, but she just like shows up at a concert and just like sings and like does everything. And it's totally like, out there, insane, super experimental stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's not something that I necessarily want to do, but it definitely made me more comfortable with kind of like trying out different things. And like something like Breathe never would have happened if it hadn't been for for meeting her. Like she would make us get up in class and it'd be like, okay, you three perform together now. And you have to just get, get up and like do an impromptu concert. And it was like the most terrifying thing ever. But um, sometimes it's good to do that kind of stuff. So what do, you, what do you do when someone just says to you, stand up and perform? What's your natural response? Well, somebody has to start. So whoever's the brave one starts, and then you just have to listen. And that's the most important thing is that you listen. Like a lot of, um, a lot of improv ensembles have just too much information, too, 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 many, too much input. And the most important thing is to listen and to respond so that it's communication. Um, we did a workshop with Keith Rowe. Like the first thing he was just like, ah, oh, no, too much. You guys are playing too much. And he said this, it's like always remained with me. He was like, I don't want a sonic sausage, no sonic sausage. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a really good way of putting that. Cause it was just like, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of that's just like overconfidence and like people wanting to assert themselves and like wanting to make their mark on the piece. And actually it's more, so he made a rule where you were only allowed to make like two sounds in like a 45 minute concert. And everybody's like waiting for that moment when they can like make their sound. <laughs> it's interesting talking about improvisation because we feel somehow or culturally we feel that improvisation belongs somewhere quite rarefied. But I had an interesting conversation with Hannah Bacher who does the radio here and she's got this idea that actually nightclubs are an exercise in sort of long form improvisation if you think about a scene where people you know the music evolves you've kind of got an improvisation that's happening over weeks and months and years where artists are responding to what other artists are doing and Mm -hmm. to what the the people in the crowd are doing and so the music is actually the, the evolution of music is actually a form of improvisation do you think maybe we just assume that you know, we have this assumption that some things belong in this kind of rarefied academic world and some things are just kind of to do with raving. <laughs> I don't really like having those separate worlds at all. That makes me really uncomfortable. And I find orthodoxy in both worlds extremely boring and um, oppressive. But as far as improvisation, whether it's rarefied... I mean, I do think it is a different impulse to on-the-spot improvise or to respond to, um, you know, your colleagues making work. It's kind of a different exercise both equally valid. Um, I also think that the internet has a lot, has done a lot to like um, increase that speed because, you know, you don't have to physically go somewhere to know what like, you know, kids in Los Angeles are making, you know, we can like, we can consume it online. And of course it always is, is slightly different online, but yeah, I find that kind of like response rate is really, it has sped up. And I, I actually think that's really exciting. I think that music could be more responsive um, I feel like stand-up comedy is really good at that. And we could le- take a lesson from there, but I also feel like television has gotten really good at that. And sometimes I feel like music, also it's a um, it's like an economic factor because for some reason online music has not been 
taken as seriously as I think that it should be. I mean, it's kind of slowly happening. You have journalists like um, Adam uh, Adam Harper, right? Adam Harper, yeah, Adam Harper. I always confuse him and Adam Harvey, who is an amazing artist. Adam Harper writes a lot about um, about like SoundCloud music. SoundCloud music is if you can even call it that, but. Um, but I feel like a lot of journalism is still very much tied to industry. And it's really frustrating because, like, I'm, I just finished my album and now I have to wait, like, six months for it to, like, you know, I'm, I'm in a queue at the pressing plant and then, like, the whole press thing, you know, it's like it, it takes so long. And, like, the, the ideas and the expressions that I have now are going to seem six months old in six months. Um, I don't know why I went on that tangent. What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, responsiveness. Yeah. In some shape or form. Yeah. Interesting that perhaps responsiveness is... Well, we're talking about improvisation and the way people respond to things. That responsiveness and timeliness seem like such an important impulse at the moment. But I suppose that's because everything is so fast. Um, talking about something you've just done very recently, actually. Uh, responding to Ada Lovelace, because it was her day of celebration yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about the piece you made with Conrad Shawcross? Yeah, um, so Conrad reached out to me, oh, when was this? Not this past summer, but the summer before. And so he makes uh, kinetic sculptures and he was doing a gigantic robot in um, dedication to Ada Byron Lovelace. I don't know if you guys know her history. She has been accredited, it's controversial, but she's been accredited by some as having written the first algorithm for a computer that didn't exist yet. So Babbage um, was a kind of tinker inventor back in the day and he, he created the the difference engine and the analytical machine, something like that. Anyway, so she wrote an algorithm for one of his, you know, ideas for a machine that would have been one of the earliest computers. Um, so the the robot is in her honor. So he asked um, some musicians to kind of respond to the robot, and the robot has a choreography that's that's really beautiful. It has a light on its. I don't want to know if to call it a nose because it's not really like humanoid, but um, yeah. So I sampled the sound of the robot and I added some voice and yeah. I wonder if now is a good time to talk about the collaboration you did with Akihito Tanaguchi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to meet him on Friday. I've never met him in person. We've been collaborating via Skype and Google Translate, <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll probably both be there on our phones. I have this translation app where I like speak into it and then it translates and I'll be like. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was kind of an aesthetic turning point for me, um, chorus. So on movement there, there's some some dance tracks and some more kind of like poppy tracks and I've, I've done some of that, but I felt like I was kind of keeping things in separate worlds. And so with chorus, I wanted to kind of like bring everything together and I didn't want to... Um, I feel like I was imposing that on myself, but I was kind of like... The idea of keeping things separate. Yeah, I had just started my um, my program at Stanford, and I was doing things that I thought made sense there for... This is the PhD that you're doing yeah. at Stanford. So that I was doing things that I felt like worked well in an academic environment, and then I did things that I thought worked well outside. And so I was really interested in, like those things really being married and it's somewhat married in movement but it's not quite there yet it's still kind of like track by track so the album is like that but the, the tracks themselves aren't so with chorus I really wanted it to be to, like integrated together and um, so I think it's definitely like the most 
pop thing that I've ever done. But I I really I like I like doing that, and that's def- definitely like where where it's going now. But not not just pop for pop's sake, like. Uh, pop as like a, an entry point and then you can kind of introduce other things and just basically like throwing in everything that I love and not trying to keep things separate. So should we have a look at your pop record then? <laughs> I use the word advisedly. So what's in there? <laughs> um, so what was in the video or in the track? Uh, I guess I was asking about the track. Okay. But you might want to answer both visually and sonically. So the track is using the net concrete thing that we were talking about earlier. So it's just like audio samples from all over the place. Foraging. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are most obvious in the beginning and kind of the interlude in the middle. But it's also like sprinkled throughout the percussion and everything. That was along the kind of like surveillance idea that we were talking about. And so... Matt introduced me to Akihiko's work, um, and he's done a lot of just really beautiful, um, a lot of beautiful work. And he does, he does like he custom programs all of his own um, environments that then he performs. So like the um, the uh, environments that you see there, he he made the program that kind of like uh, brings them to life, um, which I thought was really amazing. And he open sourced it all as well. So yeah, we came up with this idea of. Um, with this whole like surveillance self-spying, we wanted to see where people are having these intimate moments online and where they're spying on other people and, you know, kind of spy on them, spying on other people. So that's why we asked people to um, to use an iPhone app. It's called Photosynth or something like that, where you take like a panoramic picture of your room and then his software stitches it together into these beautiful 3D models that look like, I don't know, it looks like something's melting. I just think they're so beautiful. Um, so yeah, that was the idea behind that. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Actually, it's probably worth mentioning the thing that because he's doing a collaboration at the moment with twelve other artists for these guys on future instruments, where they're imagining what an instrument might look like in two hundred years. And his idea is uh, prostheses that allow you to plug directly into sound sources. If you were imagining a musical instrument from two hundred years hence, like, what do you think it would be like? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I. I was talking about this the other day, how like the Bay Area is full of people who like to predict the future. It's a whole economy. <laughs> so I try not to predict the future too much. But I do think that like moving away from uh, uh, um, the physical kind of wired objects is definitely like a direction that things are going in. Um, there's a there's a researcher and professor at Stanford called uh, Ge Wang. And um, he has a laptop and a phone Orchestra. Yeah, the laptop orchestra. Yeah, and so they um, they uh, mostly use OSC messages over the uh, over the network and can like um, perform and send each other messages and yeah, people write custom pieces for the ensemble and then they also use different kind of controllers like gestural things. So I think there's a there's like tons of stuff that we can do. We're still very conservative, you know, like me with my MIDI controller. It's like. Not very futuristic, but, but... Actually, the laptop orchestra use IKEA salad bowls, don't they, with holes cut out to make little custom speakers. They do. The idea behind that was that, like, an actual or, like, a, um, an acoustic orchestra, the sound comes from the physical uh, location of the player, and so they wanted to kind of emulate that. So instead of going through a PA, they have little speakers on them. Because, but he also uses the Chuck programming language, and you, you're very, you've been using that as well. I have used it some, yeah. Um, he wrote the language. That was part of his doctoral thesis at Princeton. 
Um, so he's a he's definitely like a a whiz at. Um, so what is Chuck, and how how would someone use it? Chuck is a programming language. It's text based. Um, it kind of deals with time in an unusual way. Um, so it's not like linear where you're like putting things on a timeline. It's more like you write some code and tell the computer to do something and then you shred it. So you press the shred button. And it also has all of this idios- idiosyncratic language and the, the, um, like the tutorial books are super idiosyncratic. So it's not very like user friendly if you you know for for newbies so it was definitely like kind of frustrating to learn sorry give me an example of how you would use it um well it's really good for and i don't really do a lot of this but i know a lot of people use it for like um live programming jamming so like you can like on the fly write something and then shred it and then go in and change it and then re-shred it. So like you could um, like you could tell the computer to play like an arpeggiated sequence over and over. And then you can just go in and like change a couple numbers and it will like, you know, go up an octave or you can change the timing and, you know, without so it's it's really good for like fast um, kind of yeah, responsive um, uh, yeah, jamming, I guess. I guess traditionally you're playing in quite you know, fairly rarefied spaces, art galleries, you know, theatres, opera houses perhaps, or in nightclubs. But quite recently you were playing with St Vincent. Mm-hmm. You opened for her. How are people responding to your music in that more? I mean, St Vincent's not like massively mainstream by mainstream standards, but perhaps mainstream by the standards of people who are normally listening to you. What was that like? Definitely. My radar for what's mainstream and what's weird is totally off. Like, I have no idea what that even means. But she's... You know, she's on, like, um, uh, the Colbert Report. So I think that's pretty, like, wide appeal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it was interesting to open for her. First of all, I thought it was really cool of her to ask me. Um, And she um, was a very generous headlining act, you know, like, very generous with her space and with her time. Um, And it was weird to play indie clubs. Like, I usually, like you said, I'm usually kind of in, like, a more kind of art house context or in a club context. So... It's a challenge to play for indie clubs. Like, there's often a bar in the room, and, like, if you're the opening act, like, nobody cares. You're, like, slightly more quiet than the headlining act, so you're just like, Meh, you know. <laughs> so there was some of that, but, you know, I think I won some people over. I think I was, like, really bizarre for some people, and then some people were like, okay, I can kind of see where this is going. And somebody shouted out Techno Shaman when I came out on stage, and I was like, uh, okay, I guess that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess then the final thing I wanted to ask you really was, I guess a lot of people here have recently experienced or will fairly soon experience that transition that you make between your day job and doing this full time. And when you were making that transition or just before you made that transition, you were working in a children's museum Mm -hmm. looking after, was it like manager of interactive video exhibits or something? Yes. How did you make that transition and what was that process like for you? Well, after graduating from Mills, I obviously had to get a job, so I was really happy that I got a that I got a job at the Children's Museum, and it was a great place to work, but it was obviously full-time, so I was, you know, dealing with, like, screaming children during the day, and then, like, writing music at night and on the weekends and performing and trying to make it happen, and that's actually why one of the, one of the main reasons, also 
one of the main reasons why I applied to Stanford. Also because I was, you know, really wanted access to the kind of brain trust that they have there. But it was also an economic decision where it was like, I actually can't, I don't, I'm not having a normal life. I don't, still don't have a normal life. I work too much, but at the time it felt like this just isn't normal. Like I don't have any time when I like don't feel guilty about just like going to the park or just like relaxing. It's like I'm either at work or I'm trying to work on music. And I think that's a reality for like most people who are making music. Um, so yeah, that's why I decided to go to Stanford and they offered me a very generous package where they're basically, you know, I don't have to worry about my income for five years, which is insane. It's like insanely liberating. You know, there's some strings attached, like you have to take classes, you have to pass your classes, you have to take exams, you have to teach classes, but I'm almost finished with the teaching part. And, um, I, so then I'll have two years of writing and I'm paid a salary for two years to write music. And that's like, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, like the current economic conditions of music are terrible. And so, you know, you kind of have to look at different patronage systems. And I was like, well, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like, let, let me see what the different options are. Okay. Institutional funding is a thing that happens and has a history of supporting weirdo music. So let me see if I can like... <laughs> weasel my way in there and somehow I did weasel my way <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> so what would you be doing for the two years worth of writing there that's a good question and I don't have an answer for that yet I haven't um, this year I have to figure out what what's called my special area which I think is a really uh, funny term but I have to I have to declare my special area is the top right hand corner of your laptop <laughs> I have to declare my special area and so um, I'll, I will be working on that <laughs> I will be working on that with my advisors this year and then I and then I'll have two years to basically I have to write like a large volume of music and I have to write a, a large text to accompany that but yeah I'm really excited and I also have access to resources that like you just don't have access to these resources outside of certain institutions like I have a um we have a uh, it's called the listening room and it's um completely spherical room like there's speakers in the floor and on the, so you can make there's like a wave field synthesis set up. There's, um, there's tons of multi-channel rooms. Like I'm able to do multi-channel. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with Ambisonics right now and like eight-channel um, performances. And like you can't afford to have like a ring of eight atom. They're atoms. <laughs> speakers with atom sub. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's so casual. It's just like, oh, you know, you just like book the stage and you can go in there. And I was in there the night before I came here for like five hours doing a multi-channel mix. And that's just like... That's amazing. We also have a fund where we can bring in ensembles and they perform our music. So we pay really top-notch um, ensembles to travel from around the world to come to our, our university and they play the music that we write for them. And that, that's also an amazing experience. So, yeah, I feel like when I first kind of started doing press and when, when movement came out and people were interviewing and they were you know talking about the academic thing, there was this kind of like assumption of like, almost like a, that the academy is like a snobbish thing or that maybe I'm like snooty or whatever. And it's like, no, this is like an economic reality and I'm looking for access to resources and they have, you know, and, and, and support. And so that's, that's where I can get it. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah for patronage. <laughs> <laughs> and long may it be distributed widely. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. 
Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Tokyo. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.